It's time. We are not called to be nice. Sandy Rios, welcome, Sandy. Thanks for being here. We are often called to be confrontational. And here with me in D.C. is Fox News contributor Sandy Rios. And you still like me or you you don't like me, James? Are you okay? You're all right. (laughs) I'm a musician. I can't help it. Uh, Longtime Fox News contributor Sandy Rios, thanks very much for being with us. We have, I think it's four to one youth. In America, wants gay marriage. Our kids are the product of public schools. No wonder they poll the way they do. It's time to stand up or we're going to lose everything we have. Director of Governmental Affairs for the American Family Association. Step up, speak up, say something, do something. This isn't a game. This is real life. Sandy Rios is with the American Family Association. A pro-life radio talk show host. Some things are worth fighting for. As a scientist, scientist, microbiologist, biochemist, biochemist, as a geologist, neuroscientist, physician, biologist, and an engineer, I think there is overwhelming evidence for intelligent design in nature. I see intelligent design in the history of life, in the genetic code of life, in the molecular machines inside our cells. In the complexity of life. In the information embedded in living things. In the operation of the human brain. In the features of the human body. In the chicken and egg causal circularity of life. As a mathematician, I see great evidence of purpose in the universe. As a molecular biologist, I see evidence for design everywhere I look, pretty much. Nature is incomprehensible without inference to purpose and to intelligent design. properties of the universe as a whole, and our planet in particular, were fine-tuned for our benefit and for our survival. In my view, the fossil evidence clearly points to its intelligent design. I see life as designed because when I look at life at the molecular level, I see exquisite engineering. All cells contain DNA, which include lots of information. And information is only the product of a mind. Darwin thought living cells were just blobs of jelly. But when I look in a living cell, I see evidence of factories, machines, uh, three-dimensional architectures, enormous amounts of encoded information. There's power generators, there's manufacturing plants. Life contains many features that we know from experience only arise from the activity of intelligent agents. The genetic code is like a software program. It's like somebody would have had to be a coder, would have had to form this particular genetic code. When I see that, order and design, I have a really hard time believing that random mutation and natural selection alone can cause uh, the complexity and the diversity you see in life. When you look at nature at large, what you see is incredible examples of innovation which surpass human technology. Examples include the flight capabilities of a hummingbird, sonar and bats, and greater innovation always implies greater intelligence from a designer. If you read the message from the molecules, it's really clear. They say clearly, intelligent design, intelligent design, intelligent design is the source of life. Sandy Rios with you. That is a production by Discovery Institute out in Seattle. And uh, the discussion of the origins of the universe never grows old, does it? It's been going on for generations, probably since the beginning of time. But it has uh, become more fine-tuned and perfected and discussed as we've gotten more uh, knowledge about the universe to its greatness and also microscopes to its very smallest parts. 
And one of the great minds behind the whole notion of intelligence design, intelligent design is our next guest, Stephen Meyer is, um, uh, has his PhD from Cambridge University in the philosophy of science. He's a former geophysicist and college professor, but he now directs the Center for Science and Culture at, Culture at the Discovery Institute in Seattle. He has authored the New York Times bestseller, Darwin's Doubt and Signature in the Cell, uh, and uh, has received the Times Literary Supplement Book of the Year. So, uh, Stephen, thank you for joining us this morning. Oh, thank you, Sandy. It's great to be on with you. You know, I have to say also on a personal level, Stephen, I, I have to tell you, as I probably have many times before, Discovery Institute uh, came to my attention when I first started in radio in the 90s, and I heard you present along with your um, great-minded comrades out there in Seattle uh, uh, just the whole challenge of whether there was some creative force behind um, creation. And uh, you've written and spoken about it, and discovery has grown into a real powerhouse. And so I thank you for that. So um, just some early memories, if you don't mind indulging me for a second. I remember one of your earliest, um, uh, uh, I'm not sure what to call him, um, fellows, was maybe Philip Johnson, who was a philosopher, philosophy professor and uh, law professor at Berkeley, as I recall. And he wrote this book called Darwin on Trial. Uh, and uh, that was one of the first, to me, big splashes of Discovery Institute. Um, can you tell us a little bit, Stephen, about what you think the impact of your whole notion of uh, intelligent design has made on the scientific community? Well, we're seeing an explosive growth of interest among younger scientists in the rising generation. We have a summer program we do every year with um, PhD students, postdoctoral students, uh, some master's level students, and uh, <clears throat> we're just attracting a huge amount of talent, more than more than we can accommodate every summer. And uh, there have been a number of, uh, in recent years, we've uh, been able to uh, support a number of external research projects with mainstream research universities around the world, in Israel, Germany, Brazil, uh, and here in the United States, and we've often been able to place postdoctoral research fellows who are friendly to intelligent design with senior researchers who are pushing these concepts forward. Um, so in the early phases of our work, we were looking at evidence that was already well known, that the discovery of the, the miniature machines that are, in, that, that are inside cells, um, the digital code that's stored in the DNA molecule, the whole information processing system in DNA, the what's called the fine-tuning of the laws and the constants and the initial conditions of the universe, the basic physical parameters of the universe have been finely tuned to allow for the possibility of life. And our folks have been making arguments that, based on these discoveries, that intelligent design provides the best overall explanation for what we're seeing in nature. Now we're taking that concept of intelligent design and using it as a guide to research. If life was designed by an intelligent agent, there are certain things you would expect to find in a living system that you wouldn't find if it had arisen through a gradual and undirected process of mutation and natural selection. And uh, one, one, for, one of those things, for example, would be um, functional genetic information rather than so-called junk DNA. And so for a long time, the uh, the Darwinian biologists thought that the parts of the genome that weren't being used to code for proteins must therefore necessarily be, be junk. We said, hey, well, not so fast. Uh, if the system was designed, there's probably a reason for the, those non-coding regions. 
turned out that the non-coding regions of the DNA are functioning like an operating system that are controlling the timing and expression of the parts of the DNA that do build for proteins that wasn't junk at all. So looking at life from a designed perspective has led us to make correct predictions and is guiding research in new areas leading to new discoveries about life. So we're into a second phase of this. We're not just arguing for design. We're using the design concept as a guide to research. Well, and and in, in, yeah. The, also, Stephen, let me inter, in, interject here. From our friendship from such a long time ago, you never led with, you, are, you were personally are a Christian, but you never led with that. You were working with scientists from all over the globe who were not necessarily uh, certainly Christians. And that was one thing that was fascinating to me early on. Uh, but they were beginning to see themselves, uh, the design. They saw the design, even if they didn't understand who the designer was. You have just written a new book, uh, which is what we want to talk about. It's called The Return of the God Hypothesis, Three Scientific Discoveries That Reveal the Mind Behind the Universe. And so, just to put it simply, you have taken this now beyond intelligent design to actually identify God, a personal God. And I, this is fascinating, and it's going to be interesting to try to make this clear over the air and the time that we have. Uh, but you actually say that there are three scientific discoveries that have revealed the mind behind the universe. So can is it possible to walk us through that in a way that we can kind of get a glimpse of what those discoveries were? Right. I, I think it is, actually. Um, so my first two books were about the informational properties of cells and, and um, animals. Uh, inside the cells of every living organism, uh, we have found, scientists have found, digital information, information stored in a digital form, in the DNA molecule, the RNA molecule, and, um, and then there are other forms of information that are stored hierarchically in the organism. Uh, Bill Gates says that DNA is like a software program, only much more complex than any we've ever created. Uh, Richard Dawkins, the, the, the staunch neo-Darwinist and uh, scientific atheist, uh, acknowledges the same thing. He said DNA is like uh, machine code. So we know from experience that software comes from a programmer. And we know more generally that when we find information, especially in a digital or an alphabetic form, and we trace it back to its source, it always comes to a mind, not a material process, whether we're talking about uh, hieroglyphic inscriptions or a paragraph in a book or the information that we're transmitting right now over a radio signal. The information is always issues from a mind. So the discovery of information at the foundation of life points to a designing intelligence of some kind. And that's as far as I took the argument in my first two books. But, of course, a lot of readers wanted to know, <laughs> who do you think the designing intelligence is and what can, what can science tell us about that? And that uh, question had a particular poignancy because some scientists had actually acknowledged there was evidence of design, but had attributed the design to uh, a, some sort of imminent intelligence within the cosmos, suspect, uh, 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 effectively, a space alien. Uh, Richard Dawkins himself floated this possibility in an interview with Ben Stein when he acknowledged that um, that uh, no one knew how to explain the origin of life from a strictly materialistic evolutionary point of view. The conditions on Earth, the Earth weren't, weren't suitable. So he posited that uh, maybe there had been an evolutionary process in space and that uh, an intelligent alien had evolved and then sent us a, a simpler form of life to Earth to get the process going here. 
even Francis Crick floated this idea in a in 1980 book. So I took that on as an alternative to the God hypothesis and said, well, which of these two makes more sense? And to answer that question, I examined the evidence, not only from biology, but also from physics and cosmology, because it turns out that we now know that the universe had a definite beginning, that the material universe of matter, space, time, and energy has not always been here, and that from the beginning or very soon after, the basic parameters of physics were set in a most propitious way to allow for the possibility of life against all odds. And this is known as the fine-tuning. And if you think of it, and the many physicists have immediately seen that the, the this improbable fine-tuning points to a fine-tuner, and the beginning of the material material universe points to some kind of transcendent cause beyond the universe. It can't be matter, space, time, and energy because that's what begins to exist. So you've got a transcendent, uh, you've got two pointers to a transcendent and intelligent source for the universe. Now that's something that can't be explained by any uh, space alien within the cosmos. No, no, no alien within the cosmos could be responsible for the origin of the cosmos itself or to the fine-tuning of the cosmos that makes its very life possible. So when you broaden the search and look at the evidence from physics and cosmology, uh, we really are looking at evidence for a transcendent intelligence, not an intelligence within the cosmos. And that's what Jews and Christians and other traditional theists have long meant by the concept of God, Moreover, this couldn't be a deistic creator, because in addition to the evidence of design at the beginning of the universe with the fine-tuning, we also have, again, that evidence from biology that arises long after the beginning, and deistic, the deistic conception of God says God only acts at the beginning and not long after. So if you look at all three of these key pieces of evidence we have about biological and cosmological origins, we have evidence for design after the beginning, from the beginning, and it built right into the fabric of the universe. This looks like the kind of design that could only come from a transcendent creator who is also active in the creation. Wow, Stephen, that's that's a lot to comprehend and take in. So uh, when we come back, I want to ask you what's changed, especially about the fact that there's a definite beginning to the universe. What's changed that you would you could say that with such assurance? We'll start with that, and then we'll take it from there. The book is called Return of the God Hypothesis by Stephen Meyer. Stephen is our guest, and uh, you're in for some incredible, life-changing information, so stay tuned. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Another example. The forces that determine the structure of our universe used to be a complete mystery. But now, we know that our universe is structured the way it is because of the value of these fundamental constants. Each of these just happens to be precisely calibrated in such a way that the universe can support stars, planets, and life. If just one of these had a value different than it is, by even the slightest amount, there would be no life of any kind anywhere. So how is it that our universe is fine-tuned for the existence of life? There's no reason to think the universe had to be this way. And to say this exquisite arrangement was achieved by chance is mathematically absurd. The most plausible explanation is that the fine-tuning of our universe was intentionally designed. In an effort to avoid this conclusion, some imagine that our universe is just one of an infinity of randomly ordered universes. So the fine-tuning is not really that unlikely. 
However, there's no scientific evidence for this multiverse. It's a theory that can't be tested. And the multiverse itself would require fine-tuning. All right, that's a little clip from Impact 360. I think they must have been reading Stephen Meyer's work out of Discovery <laughs> before they produced that little video. Stephen Meyer's new book is called The Return of the God Hypothesis. Uh, and uh, he's taking this a step further. I think Stephen could probably say, Stephen, is it safe to say that you are the you are the person who sort of coined the whole idea of intelligent design? Well, there were several of us involved in this. William Dembski was a crucial figure with his book uh, with Cambridge University Press uh, called The Design Inference. Uh, Michael Behe, uh, in 1996, published a really important book called Darwin's Black Box, in which he, I think, first... Uh, argued for intelligent design on the basis of these molecular machines. Going back a bit further, Charles Saxon, one of my key mentors, uh, with his uh, co-authors, uh, Roger Olson and uh, Walter Bradley, first floated the idea of intelligent design in a contemporary setting. They called it an intelligent cause, but what they saw in the uh, evidence of information and DNA, evidence of an intelligent cause. So that we've had a number of people working on this all the way back to the to kind of the mid-'80s. Um, Michael Denton, another key figure. So um, I've had some great colleagues, and we've been we've kind of approached this in a team, in a, as a team effort. One of the first times I heard you speak, Stephen, I'm pretty sure you were talking about, well, I, I can't remember the sequence, but the DNA for certainly, you guys had a movie on that, but the DNA broken down into like four, a letter, four-letter code, and just uh, just the whole notion of us having a 26-letter uh, alphabet, and out of which we've created an entire language and so the DNA only, uh, you know, maps all of us and all, everything that we are, and it's only four letters, and it's so systematic that you were just describing, but I wanted to put it in lay terms. And then, of right. course, the well, whole... Go ahead. Well, yeah, I mean, this was the huge discovery of the what's called the molecular biological revolution. We all learned about Watson and Crick and high school biology, their double helix model of the DNA. Um, they produced that in 1953, uh, about five years later. Francis Crick, on his own, came up with something called the sequence hypothesis, in which he proposed that the uh, subunits of the DNA molecule, the little chemical subunits, the, those four characters you were talking about, are functioning just like alphabetic characters in a written text or digital characters like the zeros and ones in a section of software, which is to say it's not the physical properties of those chemical subunits that give DNA its function. It's the arrangement of those uh, chemicals functioning like characters that, uh, in accord with an independent symbol convention called the, the genetic code, that allow them to convey instructions for building all the key parts of uh, the, the protein parts of cells. So you've got basically digital information directing the construction of mechanical systems inside cells. So it's, it's digital code, but it's also a, a complex system for storing, transmitting, and processing information. Uh, for the purpose of, of producing uh, the, the, the life-sustaining protein molecules. Uh, so it, it's just an extraordinary degree of integrated and informational complexity at the foundation of life. Yes, well, it changed. I mean, it was just, uh, well, it's just astounding to, to hear what you have to say about that. And then also just about the, the machines that are in place. Machines that work like machines uh, inside well, our rotary bodies. Rotary engines and sliding clamps <laughs> yeah, and yeah. Uh, little exactly. robotic walking motor <laughs> proteins that tow vesicles of material along what are essentially railroad tracks. There's a whole automated kind of fa assembly um, factory uh, inside the cell. 
there's even little turbines. Uh, we've got animations of these on one of my websites, Darwin on the DarwinsDoubt.com website. There's a playlist of these animations of what's going on inside the cell with these miniature machines. So yeah, it's a it's a mind-boggling world of information and informational and nanology. And thus the whole idea that it, there is no way, it just as I used to say to my son uh, in my own uh, simple way, honey, uh, you, he loved Legos, so let's dump your Legos out in the basement floor and let's see what, you know, we'll come back in 10 years and see what came out of that nothing. And it's not possible. It defies logic. This is orderly. It mimics the order we understand in this world by a much more intelligent designer than we can. When we build our Legos or build a, a train or a symbol, whatever it is we're assembling, it's, it's mind-boggling. And that's why disco- uh, the intelligent design theory was so powerful. But, Stephen, let's go back now, because you're saying that in this book, you, are, you have said very clearly now that there is a God, actually a personal God behind this. I want to ask you about the first part. How how can you say with such assurance that we know now that there was a, an ex, exact beginning uh, to 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 life or whatever life the universe whatever the word would be? How do we know now well, that it, there's it, a beginning? Yeah, the, 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 this, this is a fascinating story of scientific discovery. I tell it in the book. It begins in roughly the 1920s when the astronomers first uh, determined that there are galaxies beyond the Milky Way. And that secondly, the galaxies beyond the Milky Way are moving away from us. The light coming from those distant galaxies is being stretched out as if the object, uh, the, the, gal- the, gal- the galaxies in space are moving away. So wavelengths of light become longer if the object is moving away because the wavelengths get stretched out. Same thing happens with sound with the Doppler shift. So this is something called the red shift evidence because red light has a longer wavelength than uh, the other light in the visible spectrum, and particularly the violet light at the other end of the, uh, the visible spectrum. So this was this was first discovered uh, in the 19 teens and 20s by astronomers Edwin Hubble is one of the key figures in this. Um, uh, in a parallel track, Albert Einstein in 1915 comes up with a new theory of gravity called general relativity. His theory implies that the universe is dynamic and expanding. Einstein doesn't like this very much at first. He fiddles with his own equations to try to circumvent the implications of his own equations, and then he's confronted with this redshift evidence, uh, first by a, a great Belgian uh, physicist and priest, uh, Father Georges Lamatra, and uh, then later Einstein makes a trip to uh, Mount Wilson, the Mount Wilson Observatory, meets with Hubble, sees the evidence for himself, and later announces that his fiddling with his own equations was the greatest blunder of his scientific career. He should have let the evidence speak. <laughs> the heavens talked back to Einstein, and he finally had to, to listen to them. Um, and then there have been a whole series of discoveries in the 20th century, both in observational astronomy and in theoretical physics uh, that have um, confirmed the, the idea that, as best we can tell, the, the, the physical universe of, of matter and energy, but also of space and time, had a beginning. Uh, the great uh, physicist Arno Penzias, uh, who discovered something called the cosmic background radiation that provided another key indicator of the Big Bang theory, support, supporting the Big Bang theory, and an indicator of the beginning said that the data we have are exactly what I would have predicted if I had nothing to go on, but the first five books of Moses, the Psalms, and the Bible as a whole. <laughs> After all, the first words of the Bible are in the beginning. So, uh, rather than having a universe that's been et- eternally 
and self-existently here. We have a universe that had a beginning, and that re- that suggests the need for some external creator or some external transcendent cause, some cause beyond matter, space, time, and energy. You can't invoke a material or physical cause to explain the origin of the universe because it is matter and physics that come into existence at the beginning. Before that, there was no matter. There was no physics. You can't invoke them as the cause. They weren't there to do the causing. But so, Stephen, that's not a hard sell to, to me. It's not a hard sell to most of the people that listen to me. But how about to, like, physicist Lawrence Krauss, who you debated recently in that was the kind of the origin of this book. Uh, he is a, a scientific atheist. You describe him as America's most prominent scientific atheist and others, Stephen Daw- you know, all these other guys whose names are more familiar. Um, how would they respond to that? Do they agree? Do they receive the fact that it started uh, in, you know, suddenly it was like a moment that you can trace? Well, interestingly, Krauss and uh, other physicists, well, Krauss in particular has a book titled uh, Universe from Nothing, which is really quite an extraordinary title, because if it's really from nothing, that's, that conforms to the uh, the ancient idea of creatio ex nihilo, that the universe came out of nothing physical. What Krauss says, however, is that the universe came out of the laws of physics, but not so the material universe of matter, space, time, and energy emerged out of the laws of physics. The laws of physics required a universe to come into existence. But that's a very strange um, kind of uh, thing to consider, because the laws of physics, in our experience, describe pre-existing matter and energy and what they do, how they relate to each other within space and time. They don't tell us where matter and energy, space and time, came from. That's not what laws do. Laws describe the behavior of matter and energy. They don't tell us where they came from. What Krauss is doing is invoking the physics of um, the quantum worlds, uh, the, the, the physics of the very small, uh, and, and there's a whole, there's a, an attempt to circumvent the problem of the beginning with a model of cosmology known as, known as quantum cosmology. But it has a very strange character in that essentially the the mathemat- ma- pure mathematical laws of physics without any physics to describe. So pure math is producing matter and energy. And one of the architects of this idea, a Russian physicist named Alexander Volinkin, whose work Krauss has popularized, has pointed out the strangeness of this and said, and pointed out that he asked, what tablet could these laws be written on before there is any matter or energy or space or time? Um, <laughs> Sorry, that's math, <laughs> the laws of physics are written as mathematical equations, but math always exists in a mind. Are we therefore saying that a mind predates the universe? He, he said leaves that? this rhetor- rhetorical question hanging on the last page of his book, Many Universes in One, Many Worlds in One. Never really answers it. Hawking was bothered by the Stephen Hawking was bothered by the same thing. He said, "What puts fire in the equations that gives them a, a universe to describe?" Math is causally inert; it doesn't cause anything to happen. It's just used to describe things. So, and math only exists in a mind. So, even the attempt to circumvent the beginning with this new model of quantum cosmology seems to have its own theistic implications. It seems to point to the need for a designing mind behind everything. Okay, but so so simply question though. For the, all the scientists who are not on this, you know, who would reject your God hypothesis, do they agree that there was a? <laughs> do they agree that there was a beginning? Do they ag- agree that now scientific evidence has shown that there is an actual beginning, or would they refute that? Most do. Some have attempted to say, well, maybe there was an infinite cycle of universes expanding and tr- contracting before this beginning. But as I show in the book, this cyclical or 
um, oscillating universe model is inconsistent. Um, it doesn't really eliminate the beginning because um, there are cons- what are called thermodynamic considerations. Each each cycle would would lose some steam. Um, the technical way of saying it is there would be less energy available to to do work, like a bouncing ball. If you let it bounce, it will bounce a little bit less high each time. It will damp down and finally get to the end. And if our universe had been here an infinitely long time ago, we would have already gotten to a place of uh, um, thermodynamic equilibrium, meaning no more bounces. <laughs> and we're not in such a universe. We're in a universe that's still expanding. So it's in, so the observations are inconsistent with the idea that we had an infinite number of cycles beforehand. And even what? these quantum cosmological models that I was mentioning before all presuppose, when you get into the technical papers, they all presuppose a beginning. So um, there are n- multiple indicators of a beginning, and no one has come up with a, a better alternative model. Uh, so I think it's it's on pretty solid footing, and I, I uh, go into this in some detail in the book. Yes, and you, you talk about the fine-tuning, discoveries about fine-tuning. We played a little clip about that before we started this. I'm curious to know, you, you mentioned, you touch on this, but um, there... There are a whole group of brand new atheists. They're called the new atheists, and we've we've seen. And I, I make this political because I deal in politics all the time. But what, during Barack Obama's presidency, there was a great emphasis put on people who had no religion, no faith. He's talked about this all the time. About uh, atheism was kind of springing up, like it was the, the, the you know, it was a spring for atheism. So, wh- how are the new atheists different from the old atheists? Well, they're better at popularizing the same old ideas, I think, is the answer. I mean, the, the, this, the, the worldview that's underlying this is known as scientific materialism, and it's the idea that science properly understood uh, supports, supports definitely atheism, but uh, the idea that matter and energy are the things from which everything else comes. And if we think of this in worldview terms, every worldview has to answer the question, what is the thing or the entity of the process from which all else arises? And the, the worldview of materialism says it's matter, it's energy, it's physical stuff, and, and, and uh, the physical stuff has always been around. You may remember the, the, co- the, the slogan in the Cosmos series, both the old one and the new one with Neil deGrasse Tyson, the universe is all there is, all there was, and all there ever will be. Well, the new cosmology has shown that that's not the case. The universe has not always been here. And as one physicist put it, Robert Dickey, he said, uh, from Princeton, he said, an infinitely old universe would relieve us of the necessity of explaining the the origin of matter at any finite time in the past. But if the universe had a beginning, then we need to look for something beyond the universe to explain its origin, to explain its cause. Stephen Meyer's my guest. The creator comes in. Hold on just a second. The book is called The Return of the God Hypothesis, uh, Three Scientific Discoveries Revealing the Mind Behind the Universe. My guest is Stephen Meyer. We'll be right back. Sandy Rios in the morning, AFR Talk. Don't forget to connect with Sandy Rios in the morning on Facebook or email Sandy at Sandy at AFR.net. That's Sandy at AFR.net. Sandy Rios in the morning on American Family Radio. Well, contrary to urban legend, Christianity does not oppose science. On the contrary, nearly every one of the pioneers of modern science were Christians. Their understanding that the universe was created by a rational mind and that we were created in his image provided the necessary conceptual framework for systematic investigation of the natural world. Likewise, today, 
Scientists who are followers of Jesus Christ find no conflict whatsoever between their scientific endeavors and their Christian worldview. And as science progresses, the idea that God exists becomes more likely, not less. It's not what we don't know that points us to God, it's what we do know. For example, the scientific consensus used to be that the material universe has always existed. But as science advanced, it became clear that the universe actually had a beginning. This discovery brings up an awkward question. What caused the universe to begin? Logically, something can't cause itself. So the cause of the universe, whatever it might be, must be beyond the physical universe. Something non-physical and exceedingly powerful. This new understanding makes the God hypothesis more likely, not less. All right, that's another video by Impact 360. Uh, and um, we are talking to I'm, Stephen Meyer. I'm, uh, talking with those guys next week. They're, they've got a great program with uh, young people, so I'm going to do some teaching with them next week. They're, they're super. Well, that doesn't, you know, it doesn't surprise me that you're in touch with them because they seem to be reflecting in their in their production things, a lot of the things that you're writing and speaking about. But I want to make a distinction here. Perhaps you don't think this is important, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but Discovery Institute does not lead as a Christian organization. I feel the need to say that, Stephen, because I know that you have a lot of scientists uh, who are just honest people and their scientific discoveries who are not necessarily identified. They don't identify themselves as Christians. And so um, while Impact 360 is and by the way, you personally are a Christian. I'm a Christian. Uh, the facts are the facts, and um, they lead us in this direction. But uh, you don't. You guys don't start with that position. You start with the science, and you work your way back. And now, with your book, Return of the God Hypothesis, you're actually claiming, which uh, surprises me, and I want to hear it, that in this these new discoveries, that you can actually say that there is a personal God, not only an intelligent designer, but a personal God. Where is that science coming from? Well, anytime you have evidence of intelligence, by which we mean the capacity for self-conscious deliberation and choice, you're dealing with personhood. You're not dealing with uh, a force. The alternate concept of God, the person, the concept of a personal God that we have in the West, uh, has an alternate. Uh, um, the alternate view is the, the impersonal God of Eastern philosophy, the pantheism. God is uh, an impersonal entity that pervades nature and binds it together into some kind of a unity, but God is in matter. God is in the trees. God is in the flowers. God is in the, the rocks, and the rocks and the flowers and the trees are part of God. But God is not an intelligent agent to which you can pray or with whom you can communicate. So when we have evidence of the activity of a mind, we're, that's another way of saying that we have evidence of the activity of a, of a personal agent, not an impersonal entity. And in, the, in the, uh, the exquisite design that we see in living systems, the digital code that we were talking about, the information that we see, information issues from minds. One of the great information theorists, Henry Quasler, who first applied information science to molecular biology, said that... Um, uh, the creation of information is habitually associated with conscious activity. Well, conscious activity is what minds the minds uniquely possess or, or uh, uh, are involved with. So, um, so the evidence we have of a mind or an intelligence is is evidence, I think, for for a personal 
for personality, for, for personhood. So we have, and we have that in two ways. We have that in the design that we see in living systems, especially with the encoded information, but also with the fine-tuning of the, of the universe and of our planetary system for life, uh, both of which are evidences of intelligence, not for the kind of impersonal notion of God that we see in Eastern philosophy. You know, uh, as I have said before, you have scientists of all different stripes, different kinds of scientists, biologists, microbiologists, you've got physicists, all kinds of people associated with discovery. And uh, I've interviewed so many of them through the years. And again, certainly not all of them identify themselves as Christians. Some are probably Jewish uh, and, other, uh, and some are agnostic. So are they comfortable with you, Stephen Meyer, identifying a personal God in this whole business of uh, design? Well, uh, indeed, because uh, well, some of them agree, first of all. Some of them don't. Some of them don't know. Um, we don't really have a party line. We're uh, part of our work. We're challenging scientific materialism and advancing a broadly theistic perspective on modern science and in, in interpreting the meaning of science. And some of, some of the scientists that are affiliated with us are very skeptical of neo-Darwinism, and the broader agenda of scientific materialism and scientific atheism, but aren't necessarily um, theists. They might have some theistic leanings. Some are agnostic. But uh, and and in addition to to many scientists who are Christians in our in our network and among our fellows, there are some that are are, are traditional Jewish theists. So um, we have a mix. Um, but this is I'm not speaking for the Institute as a whole in advancing this, um, though many people would agree with me. I am advancing uh, an intellectual program that I've been working on for 35 years. And the first step was to establish that there's evidence of design. This, the second step is to, to, to use the science to adjudicate the competing metaphysical hypotheses, the competing worldviews, to see which provides the best overall evidence that we have of biological, physical, and cosmological origins. And uh, I've come to the conclusion that, that classical theism, with the notion of a transcendent, personal, powerful, and active creator, best explains the, the whole range of evidence that we have. And um, I'm just letting the evidence speak and in, 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 in following it where, where I think it most, most logically leads. And that's, that's the development of an intellectual program. And we, we allow all of our fellows to do that. If they have alternate points of view, metaphysical or otherwise, we, of course, let them, let them uh, develop those points of view in their, in their books and articles. Yeah, it's called intellectual freedom. It's such a refreshing thought. We should try to adopt that in our universities. But, uh, Stephen, um, this is an old conversation that you've had many, many times. You've written about it, and you've, thought, you've been thinking about this probably since the time you started in science as a kid. But... So much of uh, where we are now is that science is like a god. Science, uh, follow the science. We hear that all the time, don't we? Uh, as though science somehow has more credibility than the notion of a god. But the early scientists were very, uh, not all of them, but there was a strong strain of faith in God and certainly in Christianity by the early scientists. Just say a few words about that, if you will, to give us some background about why the two are not mutually exclusive. Well, right. The, the the title of my book invites a story. In fact, it tells a story. Uh, the return of the God hypothesis implies that if the God if the God hypothesis is returning now, that it was lost for a time. But that implies, in turn, that it was before that uh, the 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 dominant framework for doing science. 
Um, and indeed, that's the case. Uh, what we call the scientific revolution, what historians of science refer to as the scientific revolution, occurred in Western Europe. And it did in a decidedly Judeo-Christian context. The early scientists, uh, Kepler, Boyle, Newton, uh, Christian Huygens, even Galileo, were all devoutly religious men. And uh, the historians tell us that the historians of science shown that the the Christian viewpoint of these uh, early scientists was not incidental to what they developed in what we now call modern science. They had a watchword or a, a concept that they employed that was known as intelligibility. They believed that nature was intelligible. It could be understood. It had secrets to reveal because it had been made by a rational mind, namely the mind of God, and that that same rational intellect who had put order and design and lawful uh, patterns into nature had made our minds in his own image so that we could understand the rationality and the order and the design that had been put into nature. And many of the metaphors that the early scientists used, like the laws of nature, were theological in origin. They believed that there were laws of nature because they believed that there was a divine law uh, legislator who was sustaining the orderly concourse of nature on a moment-by-moment basis. It's just entirely clear in in, uh, Newton's writings. Um, And so this was the the origin of modern science came out of this Judeo-Christian milieu for Judeo-Christian reasons, theological presuppositions about the contingency of nature on a creator, about the order built into nature by a creator, about the ability of our minds to understand that order were, were, the, were the, the, uh, the basis of this, the, the newly developed systematic methods for studying nature that, that arose in the period of the scientific revolution. Now, that, that perspective was largely lost in the late 19th century as uh, with figures like Darwin, Marx, Freud, came a bit later, uh, T.S. Huxley and others. And during that period of time, a, a more materialistic worldview arose as the sort of framework in which science was being done. But the argument of the book is that the the original theistic framework is beginning to come back because of these great discoveries. And if it isn't yet coming back, it should, because these three discoveries that I discuss are pointing in a decidedly theistic direction. Yes, and as we talked, I think many years ago, Stephen, the, the whole foundation of evolution undermined the whole notion of the need for morality in man, and it's sort of uh, when we sort of factored God out of uh, his creative role, his design role, uh, we factored out the design of our moral compass, too. And so we've created kind of a mess. Uh, do you find that scientists, uh, given the atmosphere now, all across the globe, this chaos, it's not, I'm not talking about science now, do you feel that there's more of an openness to even uh, consider and ponder that there might be an intelligent designer named God? Well, absolutely. And I think there is also a sense in our culture that the wheels are falling off in a number of different ways. There's a famous passage in a little book by Solzhenitsyn, Warning to the West, where he's talking to a peasant. He he records a conversation with a peasant woman uh, right after the Russian Revolution who says, uh, these things are happening because men have forgotten God. And I think there's a sense in our culture whether it's the rise of teen suicide or the opioid uh, epidemic or um, uh, some of the moral chaos that's taking place in in our culture generally, that uh, that we may have forgotten him. And when you probe the the public polling data we have about why people are walking away from faith, uh, the the claims of 
people like the new atheists. Uh, and and the, the putative, our putative understanding of, of what science says is a, is a highly significant factor in why people believe that God isn't there. One, one, in one poll, no scientific evidence for God is listed as one of the top reasons that people have rejected faith. So um, I, I think um, one of the reasons I wrote the book is I, I think that, that uh, science-based skepticism about the reality of God is unfounded, and that the actual evidence points in exactly the opposite direction, that uh, we can know God by his works as well as uh, by his word, and uh, we, uh, it's, it's, it's time to recognize this reality again. And I think that might, might begin to make a difference in the direction of the culture. I'm guessing I know the answer to this, Stephen, but I will ask, uh, as a scientist yourself or a philosopher of science, has all of this uh, increased your faith? I sense that it has, but I'm asking oh, the question anyway. <laughs> absolutely. As a college professor, I used to teach a course called Reasons for Faith. And uh, I mean, all of us have uh, our own internal struggles and uh, doubts, and we wake up in different moods on different days. But uh, just teaching this material has, has always sort of had the effect of realigning my own thinking and, and uh, reinforcing my own confidence in my faith in God. And, uh, and most of us who have a faith in God have had a subjective encounter with God. But I used to tell my students, the heart cannot exalt in what the mind rejects. And many of us get talked out of our, our sense of connection to God because of these kinds of uh, skeptical, allegedly science-based arguments. And uh, so, so when you actually reflect on, you know, the, look at the night sky and you see those little points of light, you know, some of them, I can't see them with my eye, I need a better telescope than that, but I know some of those points of light in the night sky are coming from galaxies that are moving away from us. And you think about the universe expanding, and yes. even as we speak, what would yep. this, what's it expanding out from? It? It's expanding out from a creation event. You look inside the cell, and I mean, this is stunning. I mean, if we, uh, if we discover... It is digital stunning. code, you know. We, we just know. want you to go on forever, but I have to say goodbye. The book is called Return of the God Hypothesis, and now you know why I love Stephen Meyer. Sandy Rios in the morning on AFR Talk.